Welcome to Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. And I'm on a screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. In this episode, we're going to talk about Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, and Alice Cooper, and also about the Yes album, which turns 50 this week. And joining us today is a writer who interviewed Zappa and Beefheart and Alice, and who's been on Rock's Back Pages for many years, the excellent and delightful Caroline Boucher. Hi, Caroline. Well, hello. <laughs> I got the pronunciation of your surname. You correct. have. I wondered if you were going to. You did. You, yeah, spot on. I tempted to go Boucher, um, <laughs> but uh, we won't do that. Look, let's go back to the dawn of your career as a journalist, Caroline, and tell us how you how you came to write for the Kent Messenger and whether you wrote about pop music for the Kent Messenger. No, I didn't. I was not Kent Messenger. That was David Hughes. I was on the Gravesend and Dartford Reporter as a trainee. Wow. Mm. Down in the old Your RBP wrong in that case. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, it was through David. David was on the Kent Messenger, and he and I met when we interviewed Ronan O'Reilly. Remember Radio Caroline's founder? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And for some reason, because, I mean, the police and everyone were always after him, he was in Dartford, and we went and talked to him and interviewed him because we were both fans about it. And then we were friends after that because we just loved music. I was not writing about music for the great... I was a trainee reporter. I was following ambulances and going to hospitals and going to council meetings. And, you know, doing all that stuff. So I stayed in touch with David and then he went to DISC and then he got me the job about a year later. Two years and he, later, knew you were like a, he knew you were a pop fan. I mean, he knew he you were knew a music I was fan, fanatical about, yeah. I mean, it was the one way you got out of the provinces, wasn't it, really? Music drew you out, pulled you out. And before that, I'd been in a convent. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love like all the best rock chicks, you, you've been in a convent. <laughs> convent. I mean, you'll do anything after being educated in a convent, I tell you. So up to London, shared a flat with hundreds of people to pay the rent, and on we went and joined DISC. Fantastic. Was it 1968 you joined DISC or was it before then? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. So I was just too late for all the real hanging out in the Scotch time, which was sad. Right. I mean, I did a bit of hanging out hither and thither, but nothing like they did before that. But you must have been down the speakeasy every other Oh, night. yes. Oh, yes, in the marquee. And <laughs> oh, yeah. And Penny Valentine had been at DISC for a, f- a few years before you. Was she the only other female pop writer on Disc and Music Echo when you joined? Yes. Yeah. Darling Peeve, my best friend. Yeah. Yep. She was there. She really gave it street cred because, I mean, Disc was pretty bubblegum compared to the NME and Melody Maker. It was very kind of Richard Williams to say he used to come down and visit us. But, I mean, you know, it was a bit like God descending. (laughs) But I think also that Melody Maker was a very blokey environment. I mean, Valerie Wilmers, like, had a toehold in there. But other than that, it was was. entirely male environment. It was. I mean, I certainly remember Disc, not that I was buying it in 1968, but when I did occasionally buy a copy in the early 70s, I sort of associate it with more pop acts. But when I look at the pieces of yours that we have on RBP, they're they're generally about quite heavy and hairy rock groups. 
Was that sort of what you were more interested in writing about, Caroline? Yes, it was. But to begin with, you know, I'd do Anita Harris one week and Captain Beefheart the next. It was, <laughs> it was quite, it was just like being a trainee reporter again, you know, either yeah. going to the council or whatever. I just did what, what came my way. Um, but yes, I realised I much preferred, because they were more fun, the Zappers and the Beefhearts. Yeah, they were lovely. Sure. They were funny. I mean, in my job, as I basically look after loading stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s into the, in, into the library. And so I've discovered personally, I, mean, I was a Melody Maker reader back in sort of 68, 69. Serious. And then later on, an NME reader. And so I, I've discovered actually what's really good about the, the, the rest of the, the music press, which I didn't know. Like Record Mirror was very strong on black music, like Norman Joplin, people like yeah. that. Uh, and Discus. Tremendous fun. I, I really enjoy reading it today. It's, 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 I think you'll be polite. It was pretty frothy. But Penny was a wonderful writer. I mean, yeah. she was just terrific. She was the best. She went on to Sounds, didn't she? Yes. And you stayed at Disc for a few more years after that, I think. I stayed on and then I always follow. Actually, she went to Sounds and then I, I've never had a job interview in my life after Disc. Penny went to Rocket and looked after Elton and did his PR. Yes. Then she went into A&R at Rocket. And I said, oh, I want to do your job. I want your job. And she went, no, you won't like it. You won't like it. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. <laughs> so I went to Rocket and looked after Elton. We'll talk about that maybe in a little while. I, I was just interested to know a bit more, Caroline, about the female pop writers of the time. We, we've mentioned that. We've we've got a few of them on RBP now, I'm really pleased to say. And I mean, I know this is a an area that's that's really important to Mark. How many of them did you know, Caroline? Did Did you kind of compare notes with people like Dawn James as well as Penny? No, she was later, I think. There was Julie Webb. Julie yeah. Webb, yeah. Barbara Sharon. Yes. Peeve me. A little bit later, Rosalind Russell was on disc with me. Yes, yes. And Rosie Horide, but that was much, much later. Right. Okay. No, but in the outset, in the early, there was very, very few of us to begin with. And a bit, a bit of rivalry, really. <laughs> how, when you look back, how do you remember being sort of treated as a woman by people in the in the industry but like pop groups and artists that you were interviewing you wouldn't put up with it now but there was quite a lot of bum pinching and tweaking and general yeah. chasing around when i when i was sent to interview gene pitney for some reason he came on the phone to disc it was a very early one penny grabbed the phone and said you leave her alone you are not to chase around the room or i'm going to come along <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! As a chaperone, so, yeah, so it was sort of like that. <laughs> when did you first sort of uh, get an inkling of like acts like Zappa, the Mothers of Invention, Captain Beefheart, and the Magic Band? I mean, they they made their first extraordinary records really even before sort of psychedelia. You know, if you think of like Safe, safe as Milk and Freak Out, they were so pioneering when when did you first hear like the mothers probably in 68 i just heard heard the albums somebody had the albums yeah a friend Beefheart was more difficult to access but we're only in it for the money was just such an easy album to get into and love from the mothers that you know it was just easy i just love them they made me laugh you know you at the time you were you were at the time you were so impelled to be cool 
and you know cool and confident and very very not cracking too many smiles the mothers were the antithesis of that what's the ugliest part of your body what's the ugliest part of your body one of the reasons we're talking about Zappa is because uh, this film by Alex Winter just called Zappa, it has been shown before now, but it's getting a proper sort of digital release, certainly here in the UK. It looks great. One of his children's involved, isn't he, Armit? Yes, yeah, that's right. I think Armit produced it. I mean, it is, it's really, really good, you know, even if I don't think any of us would count ourselves as sort of rabid Zappa fans, but I, I watched it and I did come away with a new <laughs> respect. Rabid. Yeah, well, no, I think you... you rabid, so you've listened to, you've listened to all 100 and... No, no, I haven't. I haven't listened to all No. How many is it? It's like rabid. 50 during his lifetime and then another... Bloody uh, hell. So, so I, 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 I have the dubious honour of I saw him pushed off stage at Rainbow. <gasps> you um, were there? Yeah, I was there. Right at the back, I was at the one of the last rows at the back of the stalls, so I didn't really see anything. It was very odd. Just like the whole the, the show ground to a halt. Friends who I were with said they actually saw him pushed off. I didn't. And it was just I, very confusing. And then just first, I think people thought it was almost like a joke. Right. And it took, it took a while for the audience to understand that the gig was over and that something bad had happened. Right. Mm. Gosh. But, yeah. Well, I remember with the two sh- there can't have been two shows. I remember turning up to the Rainbow and them saying the show's off. He's been pushed off the stage. So either I was late or he was doing two shows. I don't know. He may well have been doing two shows. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you interviewed Zappa, I think, a few times, Caroline. We've got... I did. We've got a great 1970 piece from Disc. And then the one we're actually going to run on the homepage this week, which, to spotlight your good self, is from 1973. And you actually went to his famous house in Laurel Canyon. Can mm. you can you remember that to this day? Do you remember yes. going into the Zappa compound? Clearly, I do. <laughs> yeah. I do. And being surprised that it was a normal house with cups of tea and, you know, a, a Gail who was being very motherly and organised. And, you know, there was a degree of bizarreness, but nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. You know, it wasn't mattresses on the floor and cushions, which it was in Notting Hill Gate. <laughs> it was quite sofas, a stable family. sofas, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, he was a grown-up. He was a grown-up. He was a grown-up, but he did encourage, you know, I remember going to the Royal Garden Hotel and interviewing him, and Dweezel was dismantling the bidet in the bathroom with Frank arms folded going, <laughs> Dweezel, that's great. Now you take that little bolt off there and then there'll probably be some water. <laughs> A lot of that going on, yeah, which, which appealed to me. When I was 15 or 16, I can't remember, he told me off for rolling a joint. I was running at Pam Mail's place because I went to school with her sons, Ooh. John Mail's ex-wife. Yeah. Every time Zappa came to London, he'd visit them. And, and I was at the kitchen table, ham-fistedly rolling a joint, and he rather sternly told me off. <laughs> <laughs> that was my one experience Well, that's probably another reason I liked him because I was violently allergic to it. So I had to, when, you know, all this joint rolling was going on, I'd either take a, or pretend to take a great drag and go, <gasps> and because you know, <laughs> I, I was violently sick. But it was really uncool to to own up that you were extremely ill. So yeah. that was a relief because he didn't. He didn't. He was not a smoker or a drugger. No, 
I mean, he was almost notorious on the L.A. scene, particularly for not partaking. He was more of a, of a sort of master of ceremonies. He encouraged other people like the GTOs and mm. Alice Cooper and others Pamela. to misbehave. But he he kept <laughs> everything at kind of arm's length, didn't he? I have to say, I really did come away with a newfound sort of respect for him. I mean, I loved, like you, I love We're Only In It For The Money. But there's stuff he did later in the kind of 70s, which, you know, for want of a better better word, I found a bit kind of wanky, really, and, and musoid. But he's he is really impressive in this film. I mean, you realise just what an extraordinarily intelligent man he was. And what, an, what a really brave man he was he really didn't care what other people thought about him did did you like him i really really liked him i loved him he was a nice good clever warm man which well, you see you warm know, isn't a word many people use about him a lot of people say no, he, he was really, really was. quite cold and aloof no no he right. wasn't not at all I, despite the, his looks belied him because he looked quite fierce. <laughs> <laughs> I think some musicians who worked with him struggled with him because I think it, certainly oh, the film. I just think he's very exacting. Yeah. Yes, and, and quite abrupt and not really prone to saying "well done" to anyone. No, no. Well, there's that moment where Ruth Underwood says, yeah. you know, he sort of turned around and said, "You still here?" Yeah. Do you remember? No, she's, no, she's fantastic, and actually, she shows enormous love to him. I mean, if you read yeah, the film, she. She talks about visiting for the last time just before he died, and and her her relationship with him was actually was, turned out to be rather fabulous. But yeah. Jasper, did you manage to see the film? I did see it. I I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, because I you know obviously know about and of Zappa to a certain extent, but not intimately familiar with all 115 albums, whatever it is. There's <laughs> no time. No, but but I thought it was a really interesting film, and I think. A lot of different strands get brought together in that he's there's that exacting nature. He's, the look, he's got something almost sort of Mephistophelian about his kind mm. of fierceness. He makes a compelling character in the film, and you really get a sense of someone who just wanted to make things, and he didn't really care what they were or what other people thought they should be. He just did it. Like his contemporary classical compositions yeah. where he just hired the LSO. There's a hilarious scene where he's doing an interview about having hired the LSO and the interviewer asks him how he got the LSO to play his stuff and he goes, I paid them. You know? <laughs> it's just... But he can't have, he never had any money or he never had, a, I'm, I'm amazed he had enough money to pay them. I think actually one thing, Shake Your Booty, which he released on his own label but distributed by, I think, CBS, mm. was a big hit. And because it was on his own label, he got oh, everything he, he from that. He might have got some dosh, yeah. So, so, so I, I think, I think just that and there was alone. Valley Girl, of course, which his daughter Moon Unit did, and that was that was a hit. That was his as his only hit, I think. Was I love was the first. letter that they showed that Moon Unit had written to him to start that recording off. Hi, I'm 13 years old. My name is Moon. <laughs> Up until now, I yes. have been trying to stay out of your way while you record. <laughs> However, I have come to the conclusion that I would love to sing on your album if you would like to put up with me. I have a rather nice voice. It's oh. really sweet. It's so great. I, I think yeah. it's, I live Daddy. in the same house as you or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, he was Absolutely. a workaholic. He was a complete yes. workaholic. And I yeah. think, but on the other hand, you could see from the footage in the film, which is incredible, you know, how much his kids loved him, you know. Mm. And it was a kind of happy family in its way, I think. Yeah, well, and Gail was very stabilising. The, the scant times I saw her, she was lovely. Very calm and running the show. Like, oh my God! Yeah. 
So the picture that we're featuring of you um, on the homepage is the picture you so kindly sent me of you sitting um, uh, in conversation with Captain Beefheart. Let's briefly talk about the man born Don Van Vliet, who knew Zappa in the 50s and whose Troutmast replica was, of course, produced by Zappa. But they, they had a real love-hate relationship, didn't they? Mm, Tell they us did. about your, your, your recollections of Beefheart and, and maybe what he said to you about Frank Zappa. It depended. It depended what day of the week it was, really. Sometimes he would wax lyrical about him. Other times he'd snarl, and he had a terrific right. snarl. <laughs> I can <laughs> believe picture, that. <laughs> the picture that you've got, I can't remember if that was in the early 70s, he came over, the record company brought him and Dr. John, and they sent them, We there was some press junket in a coach, and we went down somewhere near the beach, and Dr. John went onto the beach and, you know, wandered about and chanted in a top hat and showed off a bit. And Captain Beefheart <laughs> wisely stayed on the sofa in the warm and we had a chat. And again, I was I was pretty nervous about meeting him. And I just I just loved him because he just spun yarns. You know, he, I think he told me that his hat had belonged to Lewis Carroll or there was some link to Alice in Wonderland. He'd just go <laughs> off, go off and just wish her away and... No, he was terrific. Fantastic. Funny. And don't 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 think I understood Trapmas replica because I really there are bits of it which are utterly impenetrable. So I couldn't, you know, analyze that for you. I saw him at the Arbor Hall in 72 when he was I think promoting Spotlight Kid. Yeah, uh, I was around there. there. Uh, I was one of the there. great shows I I was there. <laughs> we were there. We were there. And I was backstage. Yes. <laughs> and I wasn't. <laughs> oh, some serious one-upmanship here. Yeah, also, yeah. nicely this week we're posting Hugh Nolan's live review of him playing at Middle Earth in 1968 from Disc and Music Echo. So that's, that's a nice no, Hugh had street cred. Hugh had a lot of street cred. He used to make me receive his dope through the post. Because <laughs> he knew I, or assumed I wouldn't get busted, and he would, you know. And I, I've been the naive cub reporter. I go, okay, Hugh, I'll bring the parcel into work. Don't worry. <laughs> ah, <laughs> you was it from the rock thing, or somewhere. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so, like Beefheart. An extraordinary figure. There's the, the piece we're actually going to feature about Beefheart by you. Is this? It's actually it's this piece you wrote only about four years ago, three and a half years ago, for the Observer about the night that Beefheart drove you into the Hollywood Hills in a red Corvette, which he, according to your piece, he just bought based on the fact that you presented him with with this deal to sign to Virgin Records, and he immediately went and squandered the, all the money on this car. Can that really be true? Yep. So true. I mean, it's such a <laughs> absolutely true. This is 1974. <laughs> He's no longer any has nothing to do with Zappa anymore. And you're in LA. Um, are you there with your husband at that point? Is that is, um, is Robert there with you? Yes, I was there. Why was I there? I had been sent there. I think to interview the Beach Boys. I think some kind record company had coughed up for me to be there. That's what your piece says. It was. I was interviewing the Beach Boys. And then I sort of veered off and went up the, and saw Zapper and Robert was there with me because Richard Branson, who I think in those days we didn't have Virgin or anything, had just about stumped up the airfare for Robert to go out because he was desperate 
to get Beefheart and Zappa signed for Virgin. So Robert came with me and he was off looking and we found Beefheart quite easily and signed him up. And that, So it wasn't me, but he, the advance was pretty instantaneous and off went Beefheart and got the car. No stopping him. And at that point, he was not <laughs> talking to Zappa. He hated Zappa. It was enemies. It was guns at dawn. So as soon as Richard came out, because Richard was so delighted, he jumped on a plane and came out. And the, we said to him, we met him at the airport, and we said, we've got Beefheart. On no account are you to mention Frank Zappa to Beefheart, because he will kill you. So Richard comes in, <laughs> Beefheart. How lovely. I'm so glad I got you on my label. Now I'm going to get Frank Zappa. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> classic Branson. <laughs> yeah. Nitwit. <laughs> I'm a little pimp with my hair gas back. Hair gang your pants with my shoes on That's funny. I mean, it's such a be- you wrote a few really beautiful little pieces for the Observer, often to do with food, because you became the editor of the Observer's Food Monthly supplement. <laughs> yeah. And so, in 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 the in the last few years, you've written these odd pieces. As I, and, and and another of them, we'll go on to Alice Cooper in a minute, but it was just called Burgers with Alice Cooper, and and that's that's a very <laughs> funny little piece where you. T- <laughs> You talk about the burgers being delivered, and then it's kind of like, "What about some food for my python?" says Alice, and <laughs> and someone brings in some live mice. So you sitting there eating burgers, and the pythons eating the live mice. Yeah, which is it's awful, awful kind of image, really. But these are great, great little pieces, and maybe we should talk about Alice because you did you did interview Alice Cooper, I believe. Maybe maybe more than once, and people maybe forget that Alice Cooper was, um, for a moment, he was a sort of protege of Zappa, who signed him on the basis that they they were so appalling and and so unpopular on the kind of Sunset Strip scene that <laughs> Zappa was like, I have to have this band. Everybody hates them, <laughs> and he produced the first record, like rather like with Tr- Trapmaster Replica. He sort of produced it. He was barely there. And it's not very good, Pretty's for you. What do you remember about, about Alice or, or Vincent Fernier, as you, as you preferred to think of him? <laughs> it just made it easier. I always went to, along to interviews like that for the first time, feeling pretty nervous. You know, and he would he would do the interview, of course, in that full I'm you know the eyes and the black stuff down yeah. the face, and, and I'd always think, oh, I'm going to be really scared. I was a I was a terrible coward, you know. I tiptoe along, going, oh, this is going to end in tears, mine, and it was fine. He was, you know, once you got talking, he was lovely, and again, he was very funny. I think I just went, I think I was just drawn towards comedians, you know, because <laughs> all three of those were very funny people. Yes. Well, talking of Alice Cooper talking, that is the audio interview for this week. So I'm going to ask Mark to just introduce the, the first of the clips. OK, so this week we're running two interviews. Well, one is an interview and one is simply a clip with Alice Cooper. Let's listen to the clip first. It's from 1969. It's uh, Mike Quigley. And it's backstage, I guess, somewhere, because you can hear someone sound checking in the background. <laughs> This generation of groups came from a, uh, an, an environment of like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and the Who, people like that, because they, they were five years ago. Yeah. And like when we picked up on them then, 
when they first came out is we were, of course, influenced by them, Zappa and people like that. So now we've taken that, that influence, we've done that whole trip, that whole, you know, sounding like other people trip, and now we're um, applying it to a, the a theatrics basis and to a statement. And what the statement is is, is nothing. The statement is a big is a big flash of all these things. And whatever you take out of that statement, it's one statement. It's one mind, one statement, one act, one show. It's quite interesting because there he's sort of describing where they came, what they came out of and, and where they were going with it. The main interview with Adam Blake's from July 89. He's lovely. It's just very much what you said, Caroline. He's very engaging. Mm. He's a bright guy. He's articulate. I believe by 89, he was, he'd been dry for quite a long time. So it wasn't during his sort of drunk period, which was fairly extensive. He talks about his new album, Trash. He talks about still doing his old material on stage, enjoying still doing his old material on stage, not being one of these people who resents having to do it. It talks quite interestingly about how he plans his stage act, how it's about music first, but the theatrics and the lighting and everything is really pretty well worked out and rehearsed. He talks about himself as a personality. We'll play a clip at the end of the podcast where he talks about him being the on-stage villain. Very different. From, you've got sort of, on the one hand, you've got Alice Cooper. On the other hand, you've got Vincent Fernier, who's... Who loves golf. Of, who loves golf? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and he talks, yeah, he talks about his stage act. Let's listen to that clip, him talking about his stage act. When we did those albums, it was like we didn't have any money for props. So we would be playing any money for production. Well, not at all. <laughs> We'd go backstage and we would find, I'd find a broom. Or I'd find a old bucket or, or a flashlight or something. And, you know, in a club you'd be playing and all of a sudden I would incorporate it somehow in the song. And it would become a theatrical. Sometimes it was very, very effective yeah. to use a little hand prop. The way you take a glove off, if it's done exactly at the right time with the right lighting at the right lyric, mm -hmm. can be as powerful as a gigantic dragon coming on stage. <laughs> I like that. That's sort of the evolution of the act and the most limited things. Yeah, it's the beginning of his golf glove. <laughs> yes. He does talk about giving up drink and, and the number of people that he knew who lost. I mean, he used to go to Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison on the strip and uh, and he lost so many people. He's lovely about his father, who's a minister. I know Not that. the person you'd imagine being very fond of the sort of things that he would do. But he, he's really sweet about him. They have a, actually, they have at that point, continuing, he's still alive. I don't know if he's still now. A really good relationship with his father. And his father actually kind of knowing almost more about the rock and roll business than Alice did and sort of beating him to the punch and all kinds of references and so on and so forth. It's a very nice interview. He also interestingly talks about his, the musical influences and being as influenced by John Barry as he was by any yeah. rock and roll acts. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, th I, th I thought so. I thought that was good. So there we go. It's, it's, it's a very, very enjoyable interview. And as I said, we'll play a clip about him being the onstage villain at the end of the podcast. Yeah. I was tempted to ask you about, because I sort of always associate Alice Cooper with that kind of glam rock moment. School's Out was probably the first, you know, record of his I bought. And 
it was it was the same time as other acts you were writing about caroline you you interviewed mark boland you interviewed gary glitter you saw roxy very early on i mean did did you sort of think of alice as as i mean he's hardly like androgynous really despite his name and <laughs> did, did, did you did you associate him with that time of kind of you no. know gender fluidity or was he a very different no. thing no very different thing the, the whole gender fluidity thing was only in its infancy really wasn't it yeah it was just mark boland wearing girly shoes really there wasn't much yes. more to it i saw alice supported by supported by roxy music at the empire pool in wembley in 72 oh you got and around didn't you i did get around <laughs> I don't, I don't remember it was that. a groupie Maybe i was there yes you were <laughs> terrible groupie <laughs> Well, but I, I partly went because my art teacher was Roxy's roadie, so sort of we all went oh, to support Oh, I do remember Roxy. that, you saying that, yeah. Alice Cooper, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Not so much, oddly, not so much for the show, but I liked that sort of Detroit hard rock noise that they basically made at that time. The bit of me liked fairly kind of lump, lump and rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny enough that the reason, part of the reason we're talking about Alice is that his new album next coming out next week, is called Detroit Stories. And it's a sort of homage to the kind of Motor City sound. You know, he's got, mm. he's got like ex-members of, you know, like Graham Funk and so forth playing on it. And even though he's not necessarily associated so strongly with Detroit, I think you're right, Mark. He, he, it does sort of fit in with that. My problem with Alice Cooper is it was very lumpen. It was very lumpen. They weren't great musicians, School's yeah. Out is such a great record. It's fabulous. But I wonder how much Bob, <laughs> Bob Ezrin had to do with making Alice Cooper really good. Because you listen to them, their first two albums and they're, they're inept musicians, really, when you, when you compare them to, oh, you know, lots of other great bands of that time. I mean, did you, did you think they were good live, Caroline? Not especially, but they were theatrical, weren't they? That's what you went theatrical. for. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the case with quite a lot of them, as far as I can remember. You know, they weren't all... And the sound systems were really dodgy still, weren't they? They could just be any which way. I'm curious, obviously, we've sort of mentioned the food connection with Burgers with Alice Cooper. There's a funny line in that interview. You say it's sweet that Americans continue to believe they'll get the sort of hamburger they expect as their right in downtown Pittsburgh to be dished up in London, which, <laughs> which I think is, is a nice. You're connecting your food writing a bit with your music writing. How did you end up going from music to food? <laughs> I think like the whole of my career, it just sort of blew along. I went to the Observer when I joined it I was on the review and then when they started the food magazine I just went over to that so it was pure happenstance it was just one of those things so that's that's the food link you know there had to be a food link to get it in that magazine that's how that came around (laughs) Um, actually the food back then back then with disc and I think with Melody Maker although Melody Maker a bit more grown up went to the pub if you interviewed a band there was nowhere to go to interview them because our offices were tiny we would have to go to the Golden Egg in Fleet Street that's all there was which was a sort of terrible (laughs) coffee shop one of the nice things about getting 60s writing from American papers is you get Americans reporting on English food bitter, with bitter experience of English food. I think we've got Wilson Pickett complaining about how he just couldn't eat anything. Uh, 
Jimmy Reed saying they call them burgers, but they're nothing like a burger. It's absolutely fantastic. And also, they report on having to sleep in single beds in hotels. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> All of that. Yeah. Great. The Golden Egg, the, the fairly legendary in rock music journalism circles, the Golden Egg. Was, yeah, yes. the Golden Egg. Lots of interviews were done in the Golden Egg, weren't they? They Caroline? were. You're, you're yep. not the first to, no. to mention that, that hallowed, <laughs> hallowed establishment. <laughs> Rocket Records, just, just briefly. I mean, you were there for a few years. And how did, how, what are your memories of Elton and, and, and the label and Penny as head of A&R and so forth? Uh, Penny. She, after that, she went to Anchor, I think. She sort of went veering off across the Wardour Street. Rocket in those early days was, it was lovely because Elton hadn't gone on the downhill slippery slope. So the early years were terrific. And then as the coke took mm. over, they went, it wasn't at all terrific. And right. I was in charge of taking journalists and everybody in a plane to Dodger Stadium, that big, big gig that he did in the baseball suit you know when he's been up for days and days and days and he's grumpy as hell we hired a 747 and went in a plane it was extraordinary it was mad completely mad after that I went and had babies and sort of lay down for a long time (laughs) were you not writing for a number of years before you went to the observer no I um I went fallow I think I was still shell-shocked I was shell-shocked from um (laughs) From Rocket, really. I mean, it was it was quite a bumpy ride at the end. Right. I can imagine. Right. I can imagine. Well, look, thanks for sharing all, all those memories. I don't know if you, what your thoughts were about prog rock, because we're going to talk just briefly about, yes, it's all the same era, but the, it's, the, it, it's 50 years almost to the day since the Yes album came out. So I know it's a, an especial favourite of Mark's and I wondered Mark <laughs> whether you could just put like yes in context and that album in particular I just have to interject yes. I interject once I want to know if Steve Howe still eats revolting macrobiotic food <laughs> I had a lunch with him in his house in Hampstead Garden suburb which was very very kind and generous of him and the food the memory still lingers <laughs> wow this is fantastic it was really dodgy Really dodgy. I would say that the Yes album isn't a prog album. I think the first three Yes albums, Yes, Time and a Word and the Yes album, are rock records, you know, with songs and so on and so forth. And I believe that it's really when Rick Waitman joined the band, they went right downhill and turned into the worst, most egregious, pompous (laughs) prog rubbish on earth. But I saw them at the Albert Hall supporting Iron Butterfly in 71, around the time the Yes album was released. Steve Howard relatively recently joined on guitar. They were electrifyingly good. It was absolutely fantastic. And then, I don't know, Tales of Topographic Oceans and all that stuff came out and I just bolted as I was out of there. <laughs> <laughs> but the SR, I think the SR was a pretty terrific record. I think you're right. But the promotion, they got those billboards in LA. Do you remember they had sort of billboards mm. 30 feet high? It was yeah. extraordinary, the money that was just thrown at them. It was wonderful. To behold, mm. not to anything further. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two pieces that we're going to put on the homepage. One is Nick Jones's review of the S album, very a very positive review, June 71. And, and then at the end of the year, Penny, in fact, talking to 
Yes's frontman, John Anderson, about what an incredible year it's been. And the Yes album's like Top of the Sounds, Pole. And we're getting into that musoid era, you know, best instrumentalist, best guitarist, best, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, so she, refers, <laughs> she refers to that. But there is, there's an ominous note struck because Anderson says to her, A, Wakeman has just joined the group. And John Anderson says, we were only talking the other day about the possibility of rock music in the next 10 years, really developing into a higher art form, building up the same way classical music did into huge works that last and stand the test of time. Penny should have said, no, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) And and the last piece is 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 our beloved John Mendelssohn in 1980, talking to your friend Steve Howe, Caroline, and sort of kind of, because we're we're already like two years He's into not over lunch, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and John is kind of making the point that yes, were the prog band that sort of all the punks declared war on. You know, it's like that. That's the reason for punk was because of like yes and Rick, Rick Wakeman. So so that's quite funny. How is a little bit defensive, as you might imagine. But I mean, Mark, do you think it's fair to say that without yes and ELP, you know, no punk rock? Well. Quite, quite, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, punk rock was a reaction to all kinds of things. Amongst them was both. We're going to talk in a mo- moment about Chick career. Punk was as much a reaction sure. against j- jazz rock fusion as it was against anything. But but punk was also a reaction just about against the time and the place where it happened. You know, is in, in, in a broader, more societal sense. But to go back to what I was saying earlier. Is, is that I think two things went very wrong with with. With, yes, one was Rick Whitten joining, and the other was them using Roger Dean to design their appalling album sleeves and taking themselves <laughs> extremely seriously. Oh boy, yeah, absolutely. I think that if prog had a unifi- unifying underlying fault, it's that they all took themselves too seriously. Mm. Keith Emerson took himself too seriously. Rick he, used Wait- to well, you know- he used to walk around with a classical music score in his pocket. I mean, please <sighs> give me strength. God's sake! <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so I think I think I think we've dealt with yes. Well, that's the, that's the yes album at fifty. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day. So satisfied, I'm on my way. Well, look, since we last convened here, we've lost quite a number of really notable people. Um, We really don't have time to talk about all of them. But, Mark, I think it's probably a good idea to... We we must mention Mary Wilson of the Supremes. Mm. And, Caroline, did you you see the Supremes? Were you you a Motown fan before you started writing? I was a great Motown fan. And I'm trying to remember those concerts at the Savile Theatre on Sunday nights. I can't remember if they did that. I, if I saw them, it would have been there. I don't remember seeing them anywhere else. I mean, I saw a lot of Motown acts, right. but I can't remember with them. Right. don't know. But they were wonderful. I found them really interesting in that, you know, as a child, when I was about 10 or you know, 9, 10, 11, uh, driving down to my parents' place in Suffolk, listening to two-way family favourites, and the stuff which made my hair stand on them was the Four Tops, and to a slightly lesser extent, Supremes. The Supremes were... You wouldn't really call the Supremes an, a soul band. No. So, so they, they were a straight pop group, I think, in, yeah. in most respects. But that was, for a lot of people my age, our introduction to the sound of black voices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we featured a, a 
Q&A with Lois Wilson from Record Collector last week and reading it, 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 Q&A with Mary, and she sort of reminds us that the Supremes released six singles that were all flops before Where Did Our Love Go? And she thought that Where Did Our Love Go was too sweet, too poppy, yeah. and was was worried about it. But of course, it was the, the first of, I think, five or six consecutive number one singles. I mean, would you would you say that they really were the ultimate girl group, Caroline? At the time they were, for sure. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in the context of their time, yeah, they were. I mean, they were so massive hits. And and they were more, you were aware of what they looked like rather than you were of the Crystals or somewhere like that, or the Shirelles, because they were just that much later and more visible. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they were coming over to England as well in the way that the Christmas, yeah. I'm sure. Well, that was Vicky, didn't. wasn't it, really, who brought them over for was, Ready, Steady, Go? Absolutely. And Dave Godin also organised that first Tamla Motown tour, the disastrous tour when virtually no one turned up. But you're right, Vicky and, and Ready, Steady, Go was hugely yeah. important. Massively. Getting that stuff out. Ooh, I know. Last week, we also featured a wonderful Brian Case interview with Chick Career. We don't have a lot of Chick Career or Return to Forever on Rock's Back Pages, but that's a really, really good piece. Mark and Jasper, both being jazz nuts, tell us a little <laughs> bit about Chick Career, piano player and Scientologist, and now lost to us. For me, I mean, it was it, being in Mars Davis's band when yeah. I first came aware of, of Chick Career. There's marvellous records in a, in a silent way, Bitches Brew, yeah. tribute to Jack Johnson on the corner. He was and he was also very much part of his touring band. He came, he came here when Mars played the Isle of Wight in '70. I love his what he did then. I had have no real awareness of what he was doing before that, though it's all available now. I'm not crazy. Turned to forever and the, the jazz rock fusion stuff. Okay. Marvelous bass player and Stanley Clark on that, that stuff. And it could be pretty funky, but not really my sort of thing, got to say. Jasper, what's your take? I mean, uh, yeah, I, similar to Mark, really, that what I'm most familiar with is, is, the, is the Miles Davis stuff. I mean, those recordings still really stand up and are yeah. exciting and interesting. I don't really know the Return to Forever stuff particularly well. I, for me, there's a sort of gap, and then him as a pianist. There's a really wonderful set of duets that he did with a Japanese pianist who I really like called Hiromi Uehara, and those are just great because mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of just basically dueling pianos. And it's for me, the, the piano sound, his, his actual playing is a little bit more interesting than you know the fusoid yeah. experiments that, that maybe were groundbreaking or, or different in the 70s but the sound doesn't necessarily stand up but then again i'm not that familiar with it so maybe I, you know. in the brian case piece he does talk briefly about miles and says after i left miles i had a whole reflection about my time on the in the band and i told miles i really wished that he had told me when it was good and when it wasn't and what he wanted and didn't want so <laughs> i think he you know probably like like more than a few Miles side men was slightly sort of sort of fumbling in the dark as to what Miles really wanted out of him. But that was kind there's of a, part of the point, there's, wasn't it? There's a, great, there's a great story. Joe Zavanel 
playing on the Bitches Brew session, hating every minute of it, not knowing what the hell was going on, just floundering, <laughs> goes outside with John McLaughlin outside the studio, and they look at each other and say, well, you know, what the hell was that all about? And then two months later, Bazaar's in the CBS building, the Black Rock building in New York, and he hears this fantastic music coming out of one of the offices. And he says, what's this? And he says, it's you! And Charles <laughs> Bitches Brew. Yeah. Yeah, Great. Exactly. I think what I what the other thing I like of Korea stuff is is the kind of more Latin inspired music like Spain mm-hmm. that you know which is a kind of big band classic. He is Latino himself. We, we yeah, uh, yeah, and his dad was a band leader. Was a Latino band leader. And so there's a sort of flamenco stuff as well. I, I that can be quite fun. I think you know just sure. just as as being fun. Talking of Latin music, we should note the passing of Johnny Pacheco this great week. Salsa. Yeah, yeah great salsa. a really important figure in the salsa sound in and around New York City. Uh, he yeah. he founded Fania Records and yeah. the Fania All Stars. And although he was, he was born in the Dominican Republic, as it happens, mm-hmm. his mission was to try and kind of update. Cuban sound and bring it into yeah. the age of kind of pop and rock and and was a, a a really kind of beloved and revered figure in New York, wasn't he? Yes, fantastic stuff. In fact, Richard, uh, the, the aforementioned Richard Williams, you may I don't know if you remember this, Caroline. He put together a fantastic salsa compilation for Island Records in the seventies, which I still own. I can't remember. I think the Fania All Stars are on that. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, if any, if you can find it, if anyone can find it, it's 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 a tremendous introduction to kind of seventies salsa. And there are a couple of really fabulous Fania All Stars live live albums that are just you really get the feel of that because yeah. it is it's dancing music. It yeah. is it's just great. I yes. love it. Absolutely love We've got it. a couple of pieces in this week's homepage. One by Carol Cooper in the Village Voice, which is which is a lovely encounter with Johnny, and also James Maycock writing about the Fanny All-Stars Our Latin Sing album. So if you want to know more, check them out. They're free on RBT this week. And also, we've lost Johnny Rogan, most famously a writer of a somewhat notorious biography of the Smiths called The Severed Alliance. He also wrote an enormous biography of the birds that he kept updating and expanding to the point where it's now almost like the remembrance of things past of rock journalism. <laughs> and you, Johnny, a little bit. He was a, a, a curious and reclusive figure. And I hope we can... I know Chris Charlesworth has written a piece, which I hope we're going to be able to put on RBP, but I think we have to wait for The Guardian to run it as a, as a, as a sort of official obituary so and there's others as well rupert neve mark i know you're yeah. a great wor- worshipper of rupert neve I mean, he built the i think the best mixing desks ever built um, and you know if we went into the studio and there's a neve desk we knew the only problems were going to be us <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's brilliant mark why didn't you talk us through some of the pieces you've most enjoyed loading this week and and, and as you said earlier jump jump in any time caroline yeah, this week and last week. Uh, last week, um, just briefly mentioned, Philip Elwood saw the Beatles' last ever show at Candlestick Park. This is the 
San Francisco Examiner, August 1966. The the um, headline is Beatles Strike Out at Bullpark. He's a fan. He really loves the band. He says it's just an awful gig. And, and he says that the fact is they can't reproduce their music on stage anymore, which is something that and another thing I'm going to possibly mention is... Uh, an interview with Keith Richards where he talks about the Stones being a live band. This is 1969, and he said the Beatles are a studio band now, which is yeah, absolutely right. True. Alan Smith and the Enemy in 68 meets Aretha Franklin, very difficult woman to interview in those days, tends to rather sit there rather silently and fairly miserably. And she, <laughs> she says, trying to grow up is hurting, you know. You make mistakes, you try to learn from them, and when you don't, it hurts even more. It, her sort of I suspect Aretha suffered from proper depression. It does come through quite often when when she's interviewed, and it's it's, it's sad. Yeah, yeah. She was notoriously difficult. A live review of Fothering Gay, Humble Bums, Nick Drake, Royal Festival Hall. And this is really of interest because it's one of the few reviews you get of Nick Drake live. And uh, Carl Dallas says it seems somewhat unfair on Drake to pitch him straight into concerts without the grassroots training he'd get humping his guitar around the country from club to club. This is the third time I've heard him in concert, and each time more of his music got through to me. But he still, he still, he remains a performer more for the intimate club or the recording studio. I feel mm, astute. Yes, I think so. Roy Carr. It's a piece about the whole Los Angeles Sunset Strip groupie scene centered around Rodney Bingenheimer's English disco. It's 1973. The Sable Star, who's Barney knows all about Sable Star. Do you, Barney? <laughs> <laughs> Not in the biblical sense, Caroline. <laughs> I know of her. Come on that one, come along. <laughs> she says, if you're the aggressive type, the flashy type, you make it. You have to be very flashy sometimes, sometimes even sleazy looking. Ooh, harsh. <laughs> Talk me to mention Rosalind Russell earlier. We interview Record Mirror with Rod Stewart, and he says, I wasn't going out with Bianca. I don't like her. She and Britt are two of a kind, both bitches. Ooh. <laughs> Thank Ooh. you, Rod. <laughs> so I'll sc- scoot through some of these. A very good at Richard Cook interview, Enemy 1985, with Evan Parker, the sax player that both Jasper and I are very keen on. He says, I like the London audience a lot. I probably know most of them by their first names. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely true of, of the London improvised yeah. music scene. Someone told true. me the other week that there's a record I'm on, which they used to get rid of unwanted guests at the end of parties. <laughs> <laughs> This week, we got Chuck Berry talking to Kevin Swift, Beat Instrumental in 67. I have to admit, I can be on stage playing my songs automatically and thinking about some property deal. Ooh. Yes, there you go. The Keith Richards interview I was alluding to, Richie York, Enemy 1969. He says, it's always been the Stones thing to get on stage, kick the crap out of everything. And we still had plenty to do on stage, and I think we still have. That's why the tour should be such a groove for us. And this is just before setting off on the American tour, which ended in Altamont. Oh. George Clinton, Vernon Gibbs, uh, Soul Sounds in that 73. Then along came Psychedelia, and we fit right in. It just happened. I really don't know how it happened. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, Jesus and Mary Chains, Jim Reed to Max Bell, number one magazine in 85. Call us the 80s British Beach Boys, or whatever. 
but everything we make sounds like a pop song, which is absolutely true of, of the Jesus and Mary chain. It says, I don't lose sleep thinking about Wham, because we'd like to be extremely huge and extremely popular with girls too. So that, 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 that's my lot. Jasper and Barney, what have you guys got? There's a, an interview that Sid Griffin did with David Crosby in 2008 about his great solo album, um, If I Could Only Remember My Name, or If I Could Only Remember... I get the only in the wrong place when I when I uh, talk about that album. Anyway, it is a great album. I think you probably agree, Mark. It's one of the better sort of solo albums that came out at that time. Yeah. I mention it only because Crosby also pops up in any discussion of Johnny Rogan because just as Morrissey wished death to be visited upon Johnny Rogan because of the Severed Alliance, Crosby was also very peeved about Rogan's Big Birds book. But anyway, it is a great record, and he says some interesting things about it. Oh, how tiresome. (laughs) 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 Oh, the birds. Oh, the birds were such a disappointment. They were my heroes. They were my absolute heroes, and they were total shits to interview. They were so horrible. I just have to interject that. Really? They were fine. It's it's, it's, It's really interesting you say that, because that really comes across in interviews with them, 60s interviews with them. They were indifferent. They were so up themselves. It's such a shame. Yeah. Funny, their live, their first live shows here got terrible reviews because they they weren't sh- the, the reviewers didn't think they'd put on enough of a show enough of a show. They were yeah. just they just stood there on stage and yeah. bang, banged the stuff out. Can you yeah. remember, Caroline, whether you interviewed them when Graham Parsons was in the group when they came to London. I think I did, and it must have been a sort of mass interview because Penny, Penny and I right. were sent along to do it together. And Penny could charm birds off trees and well, – sorry, that's a bad But not these birds. birds. No, not a hope. There's no <laughs> – <laughs> And I remember in the middle of this horrible afternoon, her, her turning to me and we just shrugged and just – I can't remember what we cobbled together, but we just limped away from there, <laughs> defeated and rather cross. They were so up themselves. Yeah. Horrible lot. I mean, yeah. David Crosby remained up himself for the rest of his life, still yeah. remember, still very far up at himself. Yeah. Although he was gone by, by that point, I don't think he would have been there. But a couple of other quick pieces to mention. I won't quote from anything, but there's uh, Richard's obituary of Alan Douglas, who in Hendrix circles is a notorious figure, but actually really rather interesting career yeah. he was a true sort of beatnik guy and of course gave the world the last poets and other absolutely. stuff no, so I absolutely no i learned a bit more enough. about him from this and then finally it was a, a, a Q&A with al bell of stacks records from only from like about two years ago by bob ruggiero in the houston press and he's talking about i think there's a some like stacks compilations come out to do specifically with the year 1968. So it's like mm-hmm. an anniversary thing. And it's just interesting hearing Al Bell talk about how he got involved with, with stacks and, you know, how Jim Stewart and his, and his sister Estelle were with the least racist, like white people he ever met. And, Fascinating story, Stacks, and um, Al Bell, a very important figure in it. Jasper, over to you. I'll just mention a couple of things quickly, one of which is an interview with Pharrell Williams from 2006, Stephen Dalton in The Times. And it's rather fun, you know, at a point when Pharrell, mostly known for NERD and and the Neptunes, and, you know, at that point already was behind like one in five 
pop hits in the charts. You know, yeah. he really, mm. really was a sort of modern day Svengali kind of pop producer, but also active in fashion and, and stuff. And it's a fun interview. Music is my one true love, says blingtastic baron of beats, Pharrell Williams is the, <laughs> is the uh, stand first. Oh, thank you, sub-editor. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, he talks about who he'd most like to collaborate with. Prince is obviously number one, but he says Tom York is dope too. By the way, I would like to work with Radiohead if they're listening. Can you get me in touch with them? I am dead serious. That's interesting. And uh, Stephen Mm. Dalton says, just imagine that. The King of Bling meets the Pope of Mope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Radiohead, if you're listening now, there's still time to collaborate. I'm a huge Pharrell fan. I think think he's one of the great pop songwriters of the the age. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and he concludes the interview, Stephen Dalton asked him if there are any more solo albums planned, and Pharrell says, nah, I'm a behind-the-scenes guy, he says not entirely convincingly. I make beats and I make clothes. I'm not a model and I'm not a singer, which turned out to be completely false, given that he then had the two biggest pop hits of 2013, you know, with, with Get Lucky and Happy, and he's still yeah. having massive hits. So, you know, I just thought that was fun. A fun Happy is a song which fills me with joy every time I hear it. It's just... just- Brilliant, yeah. I think. I think he's great. I think he's really great. The other thing is Halsey, our first piece about Halsey, live at the sadly currently burnt out Coco, which which was a big fire there last year and when it was being renovated. The old Camden Palace. The old Camden Mm. Palace, exactly. And Halsey's a a sort of electro-pop slash R&B kind of singer-songwriter, but it's Pip Williams reviews it for Kudama, and it's just quite funny. Like, there's a, there's a bit where she has very, very diehard fans, Halsey, and there's the range screaming, etc. As it built, it became apparent that Halsey was going to attempt to crowd surf. A lesson many artists learn the hard way is that this is almost impossible when the majority of your fans are young women. Halsey didn't make it very far, returning to the stage after a single attempt. <laughs> I just, I rather like that image. I think it's quite uh, sweet, and it and it make it's a nice. It, it concludes on a nice note, which is which is sort of parents kind of collecting their kids after after the show, and one of the dads saying, "Everyone knows every word." One father remarked, "It's almost religious," which I think is a kind of pithy summing up of what teen pop fandom actually is about, which I quite like. Yeah. Great. Good, good, good. Great. Well, those and many other pieces have been added to RBP in the last couple of weeks. So do check them out. And I think that probably brings us close to close to the edge of the end <laughs> of Rock's Back Pages. Barney, how, how, big, how big is the archive now? How many pieces have you got on there? About 45,000. Wow. Yeah. In that ballpark. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Most of which is I proofread. Most of them are by you. Most of them are by you, Caroline. No, they're not. <laughs> or Penny or Hugh Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> no, we are. We are so. We've been so thrilled to have your stuff on RVP, and they they really are. They're, they're great period pieces. 
They're not yeah. rubbish. You are very good writer. So embarrassing. They are so embarrassing. Anyway, thank you. No. <laughs> We're all embarrassed by our past, but you have no call to be. They're terrific pieces. They're real kind of snapshots and kind of windows into the time. They genuinely are. So thank you for being part of the RBP family. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> And as they say in America, come back and see us anytime. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, um, we are going to go out, Mark. Are we not on the uh, third and last clip of Mister K- Mr. Fernier? Yes, about him, his persona as the onstage villain. And on so that happy note, on that happy note, we'll be back yeah. in a couple of weeks with Tony Russell. It's a wow. country music special, really, just for Jasper. Woo-hoo, just for Jasper. Um, just for Jasper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, we'll be talking about his new book, Rural Rhythm, which is really goes deep into the, the ancient history of old time country music. But we will also be talking, I hope, about like Gillian Welsh and Loretta Lynn and other stuff. It should be good. So thanks again, Caroline. And we'll say goodbye now. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs> Mr. Nice Guy, that you weren't always expected to be shocking. Well, I mean, offstage I am. Yeah. Alice is the one that's really that it's you know that really carries the burden of being Mr. Nasty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose it would be wrong if he was ever a nice guy. Oh yeah, I mean, if, if Alice ever got up on stage and was humble, nah. you know, he's totally arrogant. He's everything that I'm not. I mean, yeah. I'm not arrogant at all, and I'm not <laughs> egocentric, and I'm not selfish. Alice is like everything. He's just uh, every villain you could ever think of. He's the Joker. He's uh, Dracula. You know, he's all of those people rolled into one, but that's why I like him. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. No more, Mr. That was Alice Cooper slash Vincent Fernier in conversation with Adam Blake in 1989, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Caroline Boucher. Find more articles by her on her writer's page at rocksbackpages.com. The Zappa documentary is streaming now on the Altitude.film website and all major platforms from March. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocksback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Yes, yeah, sick, you're a sea